The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Well, good morning, everybody. A big thanks to uh, Dan Schmidt and the team for leading worship uh, this Sunday, which gave me a chance to preach, to share the word with you. And I have to say, I feel a little bit like I should apologize to Dave uh, this week um, because I get to preach this chapter and he doesn't. And this is an amazing, amazing chapter. So uh, I guess as the kids are saying, sorry, not sorry, I guess. Anyway, uh, let me pray and then we will dive right in. So, Lord, in the, in the hearing of your word and as I preach it, would you meet us right now? Meet us where we're at and help us to see Jesus in all of his glory and splendor in this text that points straight to him. So be with us now. Work among your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to start uh, this morning just by talking right to the kids, right at the beginning. Um, kids, do you ever pay attention when you're in the car and your parents are driving? Do you ever pay attention to the road? Do you ever look at things around you? When I was a kid, when I was six or seven or eight years old, uh, I used to sit in the front seat, which was allowed back in the 80s and the 90s, and I, I used to pretend that I was driving the car. So I would take, you know, pretend that I was driving a steering wheel and I would, you know, push down with each foot like there were different pedals on the floor and I would turn the radio dials like they were blinkers and windshield wipers and that really annoyed my parents. And then I remember that I would become aware as I was pretending to drive of the signs that were on the road. So I got to know what a stop sign was and a yield sign was and these road markers and billboards. I would start to notice them and just become aware. And I remember... One time, we were on a family trip to Niagara Falls, and I was doing my pretend driving thing, and I looked out the window, and there was this huge sign, and it had a picture of Niagara Falls on it, and it said, Niagara Falls, 362 miles, or you know, something like that. So, and I, I, I noticed it. It was, a, it was a road marker pointing towards Niagara Falls. It wasn't actually Niagara Falls, right? The, the sign wasn't the thing, but it was pointing beyond itself, down the road to something to come which is far greater. This sign is meant to point to this reality. It's coming. You'll see it one day. It'll be here. And then the sign is going to make a lot more sense when you see the thing. Well, sometimes in the Bible, there are signs that point forward towards something much greater than the thing itself. And what we're going to see today in our text is one of those signs that's pointing us straight to Jesus Christ. It's amazing. So let's dive into this text. Let's set the context of what's going on, where we are in the story of Abram and what's going on. So remember last week, we saw that Abram and his nephew Lot, they they separated and they settled in different lands. And Abram just let Lot decide where he was going to settle, right? So Lot took the Jordan Valley. He settled near Sodom. And Abram settled near, uh, in, in, in Canaan, um, among the oaks of Mamre, and he settled by faith in God. Remember that? Now, we arrive at chapter 14. And Daniel read all of those names. I'm not going to read them again. Um, but we meet this king named Kedileomer. And he, along with three other kings, they go to war with five kings who chose to rebel against him. 
All right, so that's kind of what's going on. Now, these kings, they were most likely rulers of, of small or maybe mid-sized towns. So don't picture this huge battle of thousands upon thousands of people. It's not like World War II. Don Carson says that these kings were more like small-town mayors. And, and these, these armies were more like raiding parties, okay? There's like this little territorial skirmish going on between these small towns. And uh, there was these five kings against Caterleomer and his three kings, so five against four. We saw that in the text, right? And among these kings were the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now remember last week where Lot chose to set, settle, right? He, he chose to settle near Sodom. And in the course of battle, Caterleomer and his group, they take Sodom and they capture Lot. They capture Lot and some of Abram's kinsmen along with all of their possessions. So what happens? Well, we read in verse 13 that one of the prisoners escapes, this daring prisoner. He, he runs away and he tells Abram about the battle and that Lot and his kinsmen have been taken captive. So, Abram, he takes 318 of his trained men and he heads out to rescue them and he pursues them and he waits until dark and then he divides his men up and then he attacks. He does a sneak attack in the middle of the night. It sounds very dramatic. And, and he rescues Lot. And then Abram and his men, they run Caterleomer out of the land, they run him out of the area, and then they return all the people and the possessions to Lot and to his kinsmen. Now, so that's the story. This is mostly just setting up the context, but I want us to remember something here. So this is, this is point one, the promises of God. Remember, the kings and their forces were not huge superpower arm, power armies, but they were likely still more than 318 men that Abram had, right? And yet, Abram takes them on, walks into battle, and he triumphs. He wins. In verses 18 to 20, there's this king that shows up. We're going to talk a lot about this king in just a minute. Don't worry. But he comes, and after the battle, he blesses Abram. And in verse 20, he says, Blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So we see that God has gone before Abram into battle, right? God went before him and delivered his enemies into his hands. And I just want to notice how this highlights the faithfulness of God keeping his covenant promises. Remember back in chapter 12, a couple weeks ago? Abram gets introduced, and God tells him to go and leave his home and go to a new land, go settle there. He promises to make Abram into a great nation. And as Dave has been reminding us so often in Genesis, it's about Abram going, making a people to enjoy God, his presence with God's people in God's place. So there's this covenant relationship here in, verse, in chapter 12. And then God says, this is what I want us to key in on. I will bless those who bless you and, I will dis and those who dishonor you, I will curse. Remember when he said that back in chapter 12? So it's no insignificant thing to read that God has delivered Abram's enemies into his hand. He promised to do it, right? He promised it in chapter 12. And as we've seen time and time and time again in the book of Genesis so far, God always keeps his promises. And here's yet another example. 
God's covenant faithfulness. You oppose Abraham, Abram, God's servant, God himself will oppose you. Abram believed that by faith, and he walked into battle. He took hold of a promise of God and believed it and did what he was supposed to do. So I wonder if we realize the magnitude of how God intends to use his promises in your life. Not in a, not in a name it, claim it type of prosperity attitude that, that makes prosperity the goal instead of God himself, right? That's not what we're talking about. No, but it's easy to go through life from one thing to another, to face one thing after another, walk into hard situations, and to forget how God's promises are meant to give you what you need, to give you strength to do the hard thing, to persevere in that hard situation that you have to walk into, right? His promises are meant to increase our faith. And I think that's why Abram was brave enough to walk into battle. We don't have any reason from the text to think that he was particularly strong or that he was well-trained in army, you know, behind-the-scenes strategy and stuff like that. We have no reason to think that his men were like, you know, highly tuned killing machines. They weren't Navy SEALs or Green Berets or anything like that. They were, they were just normal guys. And Abram was just a, a weak, sinful man taking God at his word by faith yet again and trusting specific promises that God had for him. And then he walked by faith. God told Abram, those who oppose you, I will curse. He believed God in his heart, and he walked into battle. That, my friends, is how God's blood-bought promises on this side of the cross are intended to work in your life. We talk a lot around here about the importance of reading your Bibles and, and prayer and these things that we're supposed to do, and these things are not just a checklist. It's not a daily thing to just cross off and be like, all right, I'm done that. When we read the Bible, we're reading of God's goodness and salvation found in Christ, and it is packed full of promises, tailor-made for every situation in your life to increase your faith and to give you what you need to walk into whatever your day may bring, right? That's, that's there for us. And even these promises are signs. They're road markers on the road of life pointing us past ourselves and our inability, our weakness, our sin to God and his faithfulness to care and to provide and to love. So you have, a, you have to face an uncertain doctor's appointment or you get, a, you get a bad diagnosis. How do you press on? Well, Maybe you call to mind Isaiah 43. Or maybe one of your, your blood-bought family members here speaks this truth over you. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. The rivers will not overwhelm you. And when you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. They will not consume you. And by faith, you trust you trust the promise. Or maybe you're tempted to sin in some situation and you maybe call to mind Psalm 37, 18. The Lord knows the days of the blameless and their inheritance will remain forever. Or maybe you remember Ecclesiastes eight twelve, 
Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God. What a promise. And God increases your faith, and you fight. Or, this one is, maybe seems familiar to some, you're persecuted and mocked for your faith, maybe at work. You're prone to despair, prone to give in, prone to not say what you feel like you need to say to represent God. Maybe you tell people what you think about the the probable overturning of Roe versus Wade, right? That's a a real-life example right now, which, by the way, we're going to pray about tonight at our Abide evening of worship. So come, come to that. We're going to spend some concentrated time praying about that. But you're opposed, right? So what do you do? You call to mind... Matthew 5, 11, and 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for what? Great is your reward in heaven. God will keep these promises. He's going to keep them. And that means that he wants to use them in your life, in good times and in bad, whatever comes your way, to help you walk faithfully, to fight, to represent him in a world that has opposed him. So store up these promises. Go on a treasure hunt in your Bibles for the help that you need in the moment. Trust him to be faithful because he will be. That's what Abram did. He wasn't perfect. We've seen him stumble a couple times already. Not a perfect guy. But when, we, when he fails, he goes back to God again, trusts promises again, and keeps walking by faith. So take up the promises of God and walk by faith. Okay. Back to our story in Genesis 14. So Abram defeats the kings. He returns Lot and his kinsmen. And then look at verse 17 with me. There we read that he goes out into the king's valley and he meets the king of Sodom after battle. And then in verse 18 we meet a totally new character. This guy's really interesting. He pops up out of nowhere, right? Where'd he come from? Read verses 18 to 20 with me. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So who, who is this guy? Well, if we're considering just the, j- this little story in Genesis only, we might be tempted to think he's a rather insignificant character. You know, just shows up, brings some bread and wine out on the battlefield, feeds people, prays, blesses Abram, and then leaves. Don't hear from him again. And yet, as we're going to see, there is a lot more <laughs> to this man than that. It turns out that Melchizedek is mentioned two other places in the Bible than just here in Genesis. David mentions him in Psalm 110, and the author of Hebrews brings him up several times in Hebrews 5 through 7. So we'll end up looking a bit at those passages uh, in a minute to see what those authors note about this mysterious figure, Melchizedek. But first, let's look closely at our text and learn as many details about him from Genesis 14 as we can. So that's what we're going to do. If you want to learn even more about this guy, Melchizedek, I'd just recommend a great lecture by D.A. Carson. You can find it online. It's called Getting Excited About Melchizedek. <laughs> Getting Excited About Melchizedek. 
It's a great resource. He makes a lot of the same observations that I'm about to note and a whole lot more. So I'd recommend that to you. So point number two, here we go. The priest king of Salem. Who is he? First, we observe just right on the surface that he's a king. Verse 18, Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now notice a few things. Not only are we told that he's a king, but that's actually what his name means. In Hebrew, the first part of his name, Melk, comes from the root Melech, which means king. And then Zedek comes from the root for the word righteousness. So Melchizedek literally means king of righteousness. And then notice where he is king of. He's the king of Salem. Now, in the, in the ancient Near East, there was a lot of Salem's. It was a pretty common name. But you have to work in, in Hebrew from the vowels, okay? There are, or from the consonants. There are no vowels, right? And so for Salem, the consonants are S-L-M, the same root for shalom, which means perfect harmony and peace. So Melchizedek, king of righteousness, king of peace. And he was the king of the town of Salem. Now, you have Salem over there, Salem over here, right? It's a pretty common name, like I just said. But because of the place that Abram is in the land of Canaan, it's likely, not 100%, but likely that he was king of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Wow, we're starting to get quite a picture of this guy. And then, verse 18 it gets even better. He was a priest of God Most High. So not only is he a king, king of righteousness, king of peace, king of Jerusalem, but he's also a priest of the Most High God. And he acts like a priest. He comes out of the battlefield, brings bread and wine, and he blesses Abram, verses 19 and 20. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He's performing priestly duties. So he's a king, king of righteousness, king of peace, king of Jerusalem, and he's a priest that blesses Abram in the name of the God Most High. This is turning out to be quite the guy. <laughs> but it doesn't even stop there. Look in the end of verse 20. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now, this story takes place well before the Mosaic law is given. All the requirements and the rules for the Levitical priesthood and all that in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, they haven't been, they're, they're not here yet. But the readers of Genesis would know about all that stuff. Remember, who wrote Genesis? Moses. Moses wrote uh, to the people of Israel after the law had been delivered and the priesthood had been established. And so his readers would know that the people of Israel, what do you do with the, a priest? Well, you bring him tithes. You bring tithes to priests. And so they would recognize Melchizedek as a legitimate priest since Abram is giving him a tenth. And Abram himself, although he isn't, there isn't the official Mosaic law yet, is recognizing Melchizedek as his superior, tithing to him and receiving blessing from him. Now, that's further magnified when we see the difference between how Abram relates to Melchizedek and the king of Sodom. It's really interesting. Look at verse 21 to 24. 
So the king of Sodom is out there too. And the king of Sodom says to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. What does Abram say to him? He says, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eskol, and Mamre take their share. So Abram will receive nothing from the wicked king, king of Sodom, right? He wants nothing to do with him. He only rescued his bacon in battle because he want, needed to rescue Lot, right? He won't take anything from him. But Melchizedek, on the other hand, Abram receives a blessing from him and gives him a tithe. Melchizedek is supposed to be seen here in this story as a foil, a stark contrast to the wicked king of Sodom. Instead, he's king of righteousness. And notice one more detail, one more detail, and this one might seem really minor, but in fact it turns out to be a really big deal. He comes out of nowhere, and he isn't mentioned again. Now think about what we've seen so far in Genesis, right? We've seen so far that all the important figures, the ones who are tied to God's promises, right, the line of promise, they all have genealogy. We hear of their beginning and their end, right? So think about Genesis 11, just as an example. After the flood, we get the generations of Shem, and Shem, it says, fathered Arpachshad, and then he died, okay? And then Arpachshad fathered Shelah, and then he died, and so on and so on, and then Nahor fathered Terah, and then he died, and then Terah fathered Abram. Boom, there we are. Abram, connected to Shem, who is connected to Seth in the line of promise, and we see their beginning and their end. All the main figures in Genesis who are connected to the line of promise, that's true, except Melchizedek. You don't get a genealogy. He just shows up, right? Never been mentioned before. Never mentioned about how he ends. He just disappears. No beginning, no end. Let that phrase ring in your ear. No beginning, no end. So, who is this guy? <laughs> He's the king of righteousness, king of peace, king of Jerusalem, priest of God Most High, who blesses Abram. Abram recognizes as superior, receives his blessing, and gives him a tenth of everything, and he shows up without earthly genealogy, and we never hear of his death without beginning or end. Phew! <laughs> it's no wonder, then, that throughout church history, there have been many people who think that this Melchizedek figure, this mysterious guy, is actually Jesus himself. So one explanation is that Abram is visited here by the pre-incarnate Son of God, by the pre-incarnate Christ. And you can understand why they would think that, right? Moses is pulling out all of the literary stops here to get us to see just how special this guy is. King of righteousness, king of peace, king of Jerusalem, priest of God. This is no ordinary king. Might it actually be the ultimate king of kings? Our great high priest, Jesus, second person of the Trinity, visiting Abram to bless him? It could. It could. 
Some of you who have studied this before might actually hold to that view. It's pretty common. And none of the applications of the rest of this sermon depend on whether he's actually the pre-incarnate Christ or not. But I don't think he is. I don't think he is. Instead, I think that he's a divinely appointed sign. He's a road marker, like that sign for Niagara Falls, pointing down the road thousands of years to someone far greater beyond himself. He's a priest king pointing forward to the ultimate priest king of God to come, Jesus. And we'll see that in Psalm 110 and Hebrews 7. So let's look at a bit at those texts just to see how these biblical authors viewed Melchizedek and to see how he is ultimately pointing forward to Jesus himself. So point number three, the promised priest-king of God. As we've already noted, these three chapters in Genesis, or these three verses, I'm sorry, in Genesis, are the only place that Melchizedek is mentioned in the book. And then he just disappears. No genealogy, no mention of his end. And then those verses, they just sit there. A thousand years, just sit there. Until David writes Psalm 110. So turn with me to Psalm 110. What we see is that this is a psalm of David, king of Israel. And David begins this psalm in a very peculiar way. This is really strange. Look at it, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, when you see Lord in your Bibles and all of the letters are capitalized like that, then you know that it's the covenant name of God, Yahweh. So the Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord. That's what it says. The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord. Who's that? Remember, David's king. He has no earthly Lord. Right? And yet Yahweh is saying something to David's Lord. So who does David call my Lord? Well, it has to be the anticipated Messiah the coming Savior of God's people. And and actually, that's exactly who Jesus says that that psalm is referring to. In Matthew 22, he says that this psalm is referring to him, David's king, Jesus. The Lord, David writes, Yahweh says to my Lord, the coming Messiah, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So this is a messianic psalm. It's about the coming king Messiah, about his rule and reign. And as you continue reading in the psalm, it's very kingly, right? It's all about his rule, his reign, his power. Look at verses 2 and 3. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Who holds a scepter? King. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The powerful rule of the coming Messiah King. All right? And then we get to verse 4. Look at verse 4. The Lord, Yahweh, has sworn and will not change his mind. Okay, so we have another promise of God coming here, right? He's sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Hey, there he is. After a thousand years. So in the middle of this psalm, 
about the coming Messiah King, all of a sudden, he's a priest. <laughs> Wait, what? I thought this was about the King Messiah coming, and now you're a priest. This coming powerful Messiah King, David's Lord, who will rule in might, will also be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek was a priest king, and the coming Messiah, David's Lord, he will also be a priest king. Now again, the Old Testament readers who would be reading Psalm 110 would just know how strange that is. That's really strange. According to the Old Testament law, if you're a king, you could not be a priest. And if you were a priest, you could not be a king. All right, this was absolute. <laughs> so what is David doing here? He's saying there is one coming, the promised Messiah, and he will be a king who will rule over his people in power and in might, but he will not be like other earthly kings. He will also be a priest, a priest king after the order of Melchizedek, who will offer a sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice on behalf of his people. And he will intercede for his people. He will offer blessing for them. He will consecrate them and make them holy. He will be the true and greater priest king of God most high to come. The Lord has sworn it, and he will not change his mind. Friends, that is the promise of God a thousand years before Jesus was born. David puts it in a psalm, the worship book of the people of Israel, so that they could read this promise of the coming king-priest and cling to it by faith through trial and exile and persecution. He's coming, they read. Trust the promises of God, O Israel. The Lord has sworn it. So don't turn away. Worship Yahweh. And he will be faithful. He will be faithful. David sees the road sign. And you and I, so a thousand years later, two thousand years later, we read this road sign and we trust that he's coming again. Here he comes. He's coming again. This priest king has made the ultimate sacrifice of himself for his people, Jesus, and is coming again to rule and reign and put an ultimate end to sin and suffering and usher his people into his perfect presence. The Lord has sworn it and will not change his mind. Glory, glory, we have no other king but Jesus, Lord of all, Jesus is better, and he's coming again. Amen? Amen. Amen? Amen. Now, we seek Melchizedek come up one more time, this time in the, in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews. So, turn to Hebrews chapter 7. What does this author have to say about him? Well, this time, he focuses more on the nature of his priesthood. Okay? So Melchizedek was a king-priest. Turn to Hebrews 7. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of God Most High, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. 
Okay, good. That's exactly what we noted in Genesis 14. So the author of Hebrews is just reading his Bible carefully. He's taking careful notes. He's saying, this is who this guy is. That's just like what you and I are supposed to do when we read the Bible, right? And then look at verse 3. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So there it is. We notice that too, remember? <laughs> no beginning, no end. And the author of Hebrews is picking up on that and noting that that is like the priesthood of Jesus Christ. Skip down to verse 15. Look at what he says. This becomes even more evident, his, his forever priesthood, right? This becomes even more evident when another priest arises. Jesus, in the likeness of Melchizedek, verse 16, who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, like the Levites, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek had no beginning and no end in that story, right? And neither does Jesus. Neither does Jesus. That is the nature of the priesthood of Jesus Christ. It continues forever. Skip down one more time. Verse 21. This one, Jesus, was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Okay, so there's Psalm 110, right? We just looked at that. The promise of Yahweh. He's sworn it. He's a priest forever. Verse 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by what? By death. From continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. How long does he live to make intercession? Always. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. Jesus is our great high priest, not in the order of the priests of the old covenant who died, but in the order of Melchizedek, king of righteousness, king of peace, with no beginning or end, who intercedes on our behalf forever. The old Scottish minister Robert Murray McShane said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. And he continues to pray for you, to intercede on your behalf, on my behalf, before the Father forever. That is our high priest, King Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen. So, are you trusting those promises today? Right now, right now, are you clinging to them by faith to help you face the realities of a life in a broken, sinful world? Remember, 
That's what Abram did when he walked into battle. He trusted the covenant promises of God. And now we have Jesus and the new covenant in his blood in whom all the promises of God find their yes and their amen in the blood of Jesus. They're bought with his blood. So when the world opposes you, are you trusting? Are you trusting that there's a priest king who is coming again to rule and to reign in righteousness? That opposition that you're facing right now for Jesus' sake, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And now, even right now, that coming reign is coming, but he's ruling and reigning in our hearts to give perfect peace that transcends all understanding. Daniel prayed about the rest that we have in Christ. That's ours right now. That's ours right now by the blood of Jesus. There is peace for that doctor's appointment. And I know some of your stories. I know some of the things that you're facing. Our great high priest is interceding on your behalf. Amen. Trust that he's working all things for your good because of his blood. And as you fight your sin, maybe you're feeling just utterly defeated. Maybe you're feeling it's just hopeless. I've gone around this circle a thousand times. You feel utterly defeated without hope, fearful to approach the throne. Trust right now, right now, that there is a promised priest king who has sacrificed for you, made the ultimate sacrifice of his body. And if you come to him by faith, he will plead your case before the Father. He will intercede for you and continue to intercede forever because of the great and precious promises of God. No condemnation, no wrath, only love and fatherly care. God has given us a road sign in Melchizedek to point to the priest king Jesus. He's come once, he's coming again. And he calls us to trust him and his promises by faith. So will you trust him? Right now, in this moment, will you trust him in his promises? Let's pray. Lord, many of us feel the weakness of our faith, and yet we don't trust in the power of our faith, but in the object of our faith. The high king priest of God, Jesus Christ, the one who is ruling and reigning right now in the heavenlies in our hearts and one day is coming again to make that rule final. And the one who is interceding for us, who has offered the perfect sacrifice of himself so that we might be united to God and have a case because he is the king of righteousness. Help us to trust your promises. Help us to see that you are so much better than anything the world has to offer. Help us to fight for faith. And would you use these promises by your Holy Spirit living inside of us to give us the strength we need to live in a world that is opposed to you. We need you, and we have a great high priest who is looking down on us in love. Help us to trust him in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720-13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.